as you heard, I wasn't supposed to be here this morning, Don was, but uh, it was lunchtime yesterday and I get a call and it's Don saying, I've got COVID, um, I know that you guys are one week ahead of us, so would you come and share? And um, Yeah, it's really a privilege to be here. My name is James. Uh, I come from a little small town in the Eastern Cape called Ponce, um, or the, it's also known as King Williamstown. It's about 60 kilometers inland from East London. Um, but I've now been in Cape Town for the last six years, and um, just this year started interning at South Penn. And although this is my first time here in this building, it does feel like Seaburg is a bit of a home away from home. We have Don come over, and I know that Luke comes here too, and always speaks so fondly of you guys. And um, I remember back to when we met at the range, and we did holiday clubs together, all the chaos that ensued there. But um, it's, it's all lovely just to be here. And I hope that this morning would be an encouragement to you, but also a challenge um, as we go into God's Word together. So in your Bibles or on your smartphones, um, would you open up to James chapter 1, and we'll read from verses 19 to 21 together. James chapter 1, verses 19 to 21. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. So, as we heard this morning, we're starting our new mini-series in James. But really, we're just continuing along the letter as we've read together so far. And in this series, we've been asking the question, what does real faith look like in real life? What does real faith look like practically in real life? Here in the greater Constantinburg area, in the southern suburbs, in your work, in your schools, in your marketplaces, in your homes. What does real faith look like practically in real life? In other words, we're asking, how do we live as followers of Jesus today, in our day-to-day -day lives? And this question is at the heart of James's letter, and indeed, it's the question that is at the heart of our passage this morning. And to actually help us understand where we're going, I think it'll be helpful to jump back a few verses up from what we've just read to verses 16 to 18. I know that Derek preached from it a two, uh, two weeks ago or so, but I think it's helpful because verses 16 to 18 act as a bit of like a, a hinge, transitioning us from one body of thought to the next in the first part of James's letter. So in your Bibles or on your smartphones, would you look a few verses up? And uh, let's read from verse 16 together. James writes, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Don't be deceived. What mustn't we be deceived about according to James? Well, the whole of chapter one so far has been about experiencing trials and temptations. James is writing to a people who've suffered persecution, poverty and isolation. He's writing to a people who have been tempted to give into their sinful desires, to doubt God's goodness and faithfulness to them, and even to lose their faith. And so James, being aware of their circumstances, being aware of their trials and their temptations, he then counsels these confused and conflicted Christians saying, don't be deceived. Don't get the wrong idea about this man. Don't be led astray. Don't be deceived. And what he's saying is this, don't let your present circumstances, 
your present trials and temptations. Don't let them distort your view of God. Don't let them destroy your trust in God. Don't let them drag you away from God, his word, and his people. No, James is saying, don't let your present experiences deceive you. Don't let them deceive you about who God is and what he's like. My dear brothers and sisters, don't be deceived. And here's why. Would you look with me at verse 17 again? Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Far from being absent in our trials, far from being the source of our temptations, in verse 17, James reminds us of who God really is and what he's really like. James reminds us that we have a God and Father in heaven who never changes, who never changes. A Father in heaven who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. A Father who is good. A Father who has given every good and perfect gift in your life to you. A Father who calls you my son and my daughter. A Father who loves you. A good, good Father. And to illustrate just how good our God is, James writes in verse 18, that he chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Now, out of the overflow of his very own goodness, love, and grace, our heavenly Father has chosen to give us birth through the word of truth. That is the gospel. And through trusting in this word of truth, through trusting in the gospel, God has caused us to be born again. Born again, not of flesh and, bro- and bone, but born by the Holy Spirit of God now living in us. The Bible tells us that we were all dead in sin. All of us, bad seed. But through the death and resurrection of his son, the gospel, God has made us alive again. All of us now washed, redeemed, and restored seed. And God has brought us up as a kind of first fruits of his harvest of salvation. Through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, James says, we are now first fruits. And I don't know if any of you go around thinking or talking like this when we think of our identity as a Christian. Yes, we are sons and daughters of God. Yes, we are heirs and ambassadors of his kingdom. But equally true here, according to James in verse 18, is to say that we are first fruits. That our identity as the church is that we are first fruits of all that God created. First fruits. But what does he mean and why would he say it? Well, quite simply, first fruits are the first fruits that appear on a tree. Think of those initial small green oranges that first appear on an orange tree. First fruits are the first fruits that a tree bears. But here's the point what are these first fruits a sign of? more fruits, second fruits, third fruits, 10th fruits, 40th fruits. First fruits are a sign that there is more fruit to come. And James is saying that we, the church, the people of God, that we are a kind of first fruits of all that God created. Just as the first fruits that appear on a tree are a sign that there is more fruit to come, James is saying that our new birth through the gospel, our redemption, restoration, and renewal through the word of truth, beginning. 
that's just a foretaste. There is more to come. James is saying that our new birth through the gospel is evidence of God's great salvation plan to redeem and restore everything he created. All things. The Bible tells us that God in his mercy and grace is reconciling all things to himself. All things, things on heaven, things in earth, on the earth. The cosmos beyond us, the systems and institutions around us, the very sinful hearts in us, all things. God is redeeming all things back to himself. And that's the story of the Bible. That's the story of the world. That's the story that every one of us is caught up in, whether we know it or not. It's the story of God moving all things toward salvation. And salvation is that day when God is fully going to make all things new. When his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When every tear will be wiped away. When every hurt, every injustice, every bit of suffering that you've experienced in your life will be accounted for. When justice and righteousness will flow down the streets like a mighty river. When everything sad will become untrue. When God will again dwell with his people, all things fully redeemed, all things fully restored, all things made new. That's what God is doing. That's where the world is heading. And that's our destiny as followers of Jesus. And according to James here in verse 18, God has chosen us, chosen for us the church, to be the first fruits of that salvation. That the church, that this church, as dim as it may be, is meant to be a snapshot of where God is taking the rest of the world. Or as one theologian put it, the church is the model home of the community that will one day be in heaven. The church is the model home of what the neighborhood of heaven is going to look like. And church, because God chose to give us birth through the word of truth, our presence in this world is like the first rays of light after a long night of darkness. We are like the first spots of grass peeking through the snow and signaling the end of a long winter. We're a foretaste of God's new world. Because of the gospel, we are first fruits. We have an identity and we have a destiny. So in summary so far, James is saying, don't be deceived. Know who God is. Know who you are as a result and know where this world is going. And here's why it's so important to understand this before we jump into verses 19 and 21, and indeed the rest of James's letter. Here's why it's so important. James is saying, if you truly want to change, if you truly want to become more like Jesus, if you truly want to persevere in your trials and say no to your temptations, then you need to understand your identity and destiny in Christ because of the gospel. If you want to live as a follower of Jesus in fullness and joy and life, then you need to understand your identity and destiny in Christ. You need to know deep down who you are and where you're going in light of the gospel. You need to know what God has done for you through the death and resurrection of Jesus and know that he's redeemed you, restored you, remade you, and that he's not finished with you or anyone else or the rest of creation. You need to understand your identity and destiny as a first fruit of God's kingdom. You need to be embracing that. 
be stunned by it, be captivated by it. We need to be caught up into this great story of God redeeming all things back to himself because that's how we change. That's how we persevere. And that's how we live as followers of Jesus. I wonder if any of you remember the story of the princess and the frog. Now, in all honesty, I'm a little fuzzy on all the details and how the whole story actually goes. But what I do remember, and I think it's kind of like the climactic moment of the story, is that there's a princess, she kisses the frog, and the frog turns into a prince. That sound about right. I said to the, <laughs> the congregation this morning, it was like, talk about some interesting relationship advice. Like, if you want a prince, then you have to kiss a frog. Like, it's not great. But think about with me for a moment that frog slash prince. For most of his life, he was a frog. He looked like a frog. He moved like a frog. He ate whatever frogs ate. He probably sounded like a frog. You know, like rabbit. <laughs> that was terrible. Sorry. But, but he was a frog. He was a frog. And he was always going to be a frog. Being a frog was his identity. And being a frog was his destiny. And then along came a girl. As is so often the case. <laughs> but the princess comes. She kisses the frog. And the frog is now transformed. No longer is he a frog. No, now he's a prince. His identity forever changed. His destiny forever changed. No longer is he a frog. No, he's a prince. But let me ask you this. Do you think after all of this that he still lived like a frog? No. Because his identity was changed, because his destiny was changed, this prince no longer lived like a frog. He lived like a prince. And I think that's kind of what James is saying here in verse 18. He's saying that before you can live as a follower of Jesus, before you can live like a prince, you need to understand that you are no longer a frog. You need to understand your identity and destiny in Jesus and then live in light of that. Okay. So, so far, so good. How do we live as followers of Jesus? We start by knowing our identity and destiny as the first fruits of God's salvation, our brother and sister, you are first fruits. And if this is where we start, if we start with our identity and destiny in Christ, then how do we live as first fruits today? How do we practically live out our day-to-day -day lives in light of our gospel identity and destiny? And that's where James takes us next. So in your Bibles, would you look with me at verses 19 and 20 again? My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. So how do we live as first fruits today? Well, according to James, it's by being quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. In contrast, how do we not live as first fruits today? by being slow to listen, quick to speak, and quick to become angry. And as we work our way through James's letter together, we will see that James addresses these specific behaviors again and again. These are problems within the communities that he was writing to, and he wants to root them out. So let's look at each behavior in turn. Firstly, quick to listen and slow to speak. 
Now, it would seem that one of the more pronounced and concerning ways that these Christians were not living as God's first fruits is that they weren't listening to one another. They were kind of getting into these shouting matches, always speaking over one another, always trying to make their point heard, always trying to silence the other, always speaking but never listening, always trying to be heard but never hearing, always quick to speak but never quick to listen. And instead of living as the first fruits of God's kingdom, instead of modeling the reconciling love, compassion, and grace of Jesus, and instead of lovingly, generously, and patiently listening to their brothers and sisters, these Christians spoke and spoke and spoke. They spoke quickly and they spoke often. And when they felt like they weren't being heard, what would they do? They would speak louder and louder and louder. So what's the result of that? I wonder if you could answer this even from your own personal experiences. What are the results of always speaking but never listening? Or said another way, of always being spoken to but never being heard? Perhaps phrases like this come to mind. He never listens to me. He never takes the time to ask how I'm doing or to ask what I think. He always interrupts me. He never listens to me. Or... Every time I talk to her, she makes me feel so small, insignificant, unworthy, that my life is somehow or another lesser. Or maybe they never understand. They never understand what I'm trying to say. No one understands. What are the results of always speaking but never listening? To name a few, broken relationships, fractures and friction in families, hostility in communities, Hurt, resentment, disillusionment. Ultimately, the result of always speaking but never listening is that people are pushed to the side. They're left alone, not heard, not cared for, not loved. And James is saying that this is not right. This is not good fruit. This is not what it means to live as a follower of Jesus. No, what it means to live as a follower of Jesus is to be slow to speak. Notice that James stop saying never speak, only be slow to speak. In other words, before you say something, think, slow down, hesitate, delay your response and consider what you're about to say. Be slow to speak. Because if you're slow to speak, then you'll be able to listen. And I mean, truly listen. And when you're able to listen, then you'll be able to understand. And when you're able to understand, then you'll be able to love. James says, be quick to listen because listening is an act of love. To listen is to sacrifice. To listen is to serve. To listen is to extend the love of Christ to others. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the 20th century German pastor, in his book, Life Together, says this about listening and following Jesus. The first service one owes to others in the community involves listening to them. Just as our love for God begins with listening to God's word, the beginning of love for other Christians is learning to listen to them. God's love for us is shown by the fact that God not only gives us God's word, but also lends us God's ear. We do God's work for our brothers and sisters when we learn to listen to them. So often Christians, especially preachers, think that their only service is always to offer something, to have something to say when they are together with other people. 
They forget that listening can be a greater service than speaking. Many people seek a sympathetic ear and do not find it among Christians because these Christians are talking even when they should be listening. Bonhoeffer says the first service we owe to our brothers and sisters, the first service we owe to our brothers and sisters in this church is to listen to them. For each of us to offer one another the gift of understanding, to offer one another the gift of acceptance, even if it doesn't mean agreement, and to offer the gift of taking one another to listen, to truly listen. The theologian David Augsburger once wrote, being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they're almost indistinguishable. To that I would say, to listen is to love. So be quick to listen. And here are a few suggestions for how we can listen as followers of Jesus. Firstly, start by listening to God. Being able to listen well to others starts with being able to listen to the word of God. So start by listening to the words of scripture. Listen to everything God has to say about himself, his nature and his character. Listen to the riches of the gospel, his love for us, our need for him. If we want to listen well to others, then we need to start by listening to God. And from there, we can lovingly listen to people by offering them the gift of an unhurried, undistracted presence. By staying curious and assuming the best of others. By asking more questions than assuming to know the answers. Here's an important one. By resisting to put our own meanings into other people's words. By repeating back what we hear for clarification and connection. By hearing not only with our ears, but with our eyes and our hearts. And lastly, we can lovingly listen to people by listening as givers of grace and not as lawyers seeking to prosecute. Common ground here in Constantinople. May we be a people who listen to understand, who listen to serve, and who listen to love with the loving grace of our Lord Jesus. James says, be quick to listen, be slow to speak, and secondly, be slow to become angry. Would you look with me again at verses 19 to 20? My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Now, the community that James was writing to were not just bad listeners. They were also an angry people. They were bitter people, people who would flare up in fits of blinding rage. And recognizing that the behavior was actually spoiling their communal health, and that the behavior was actually rotting away at their witness as God's first fruits community, James now speaks directly to their anger. So what he says here about anger and how he counsels them to change is actually quite profound. He says, everyone, all followers of Jesus should be slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Firstly, do you notice in our verses that anger is not inherently sinful? That anger is not necessarily wrong? It's not necessarily a bad thing. Our passage doesn't say, don't get angry. It says, don't get angry quickly. James says, be slow to anger, but anger in and of itself is not sinful. And here's why. Because God gets angry. At the death of his friend Lazarus, Jesus gets angry. 
at the greed and exploitation at the temple, Jesus gets angry. At the hypocrisy of religious leaders, Jesus gets angry. And if Andrew were wrong, then Jesus wouldn't get angry because he's perfect. But he does. I think here's why. Tim Keller once said, anger is energy released to defend and protect something. Anger is energy released to defend and protect something. So when Jesus sees someone hurt, he gets angry. He protects them. When Jesus sees truth being hurt, he gets angry. He defends. In other words, anger is not necessarily wrong. In fact, anger, if released properly, if released to defend and protect what is good and honorable and beautiful, then anger is actually appropriate. Then anger is actually godly and good. But James isn't talking about any anger here. He's talking about a kind of anger that's gone bad. And James mentions two ways to tell if the anger in your life has gone bad. Anger that has gone bad is firstly quick. It flares up in a second. It explodes. It's one minute you're all fine. It's the next you're out of control. It's quick. Secondly, anger that has gone bad leads to unrighteousness. In other words, it leads to evil, brokenness, and regret. Think about the Hulk with me. Now, in comic books, Bruce Banner is a brilliant scientist. He's intelligent. He's kind. He's even a bit scrawny and timid. But as soon as something triggers him, in a split-second moment, he explodes in anger and transforms into the Hulk, a huge green monster out of control, leaving only destruction in his, in his wake, buildings destroyed, cars smashed, and lives severely affected by his rage. And it's only after he's cooled down that he turns back into Bruce. And all that he's left with is the destruction he's caused and deep-seated regret. I think that's something of what James is saying here. Anger that has gone bad is quick, it explodes, it's out of control, and it leads you to say and do things that only cause brokenness and regret. More than that, I think James is not only talking about the external outbursts and fits of rage that happen in our lives. I think he's definitely talking to those. But I think he's also talking about the deep-seated bitterness that lives in so many of us. For some people, anger comes out fiery and violent, but for others, anger comes out passively in bitterness, in holding grudges, and in resentment towards others. Sometimes it even comes out as like a violent passivity. James is speaking to all anger that has gone bad in our lives, to the external outbursts, but also to the underlying bitterness, fear, and pride in our hearts too. And he says, everyone should be slow to become angry because human anger only leads to hurt, brokenness, and regret. It doesn't lead to righteousness. It doesn't lead to joy. It doesn't lead to life. So James says, be slow to anger. I think it's only appropriate to stop here and to speak to those of you who are angry today and ask, are you an angry person? And actually, one of the first things you have to do, one of the most important and hardest things that you have to do is actually to acknowledge that you are angry and that anger is an issue in your life. Because the problem with anger is that the angrier a person is, the more convinced they are that it's the other person's problem and not their own. So are you angry? 
Are you angry with other people? With what they've done to you? With what they've said to you or about you? With how they've hurt you? Are you angry at the circumstances in your life? At where you find yourself right now? At the hardships, the trials that you've experienced or that you continue to experience? At the seemingly unfair and unjust and unsatisfying nature of your life? Are you angry with God? With his word, with parts of his word? With his people, the church? With his apparent absence when you've needed him most? Are you angry with yourself, with your failures, with your unmet expectations, with your body, with the person that you've become? Are you an angry person? Someone who explodes, someone who loses control and who lashes out at those who love them. Are you an angry person, someone who harbors deep bitterness towards God's people and themselves? My brother and sister, are you angry? Has anger... In your, has the anger in your life become like chains imprisoning you? The shackles on your ankles and in your wrists? Has the bitterness in your life become like heavy weights dragging you down? Has the anger and bitterness in your life become like dirty, smelly, heavy old clothes that you just can't take off? To you, to you is my prayer that verses 21 will speak truth, freedom, hope. Would you look with me again to God's word? Verse 21, therefore get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. In response to our anger and our bitterness and in truth in response to our sin, James calls us to get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. He says get rid of it. Take it off. Put it away. And he uses the image of taking off dirty clothing. I wonder if you can remember back to a time with me when you were a child. And I wonder if you can remember back to a time when it just rained and rained and rained, almost as if the shower taps of the heavens were left running. And do you remember what it was like to go outside after it had rained? Rain bucketing down on all sides, pools of water lying where fields of grass once were. And underfoot, soft, squelchy, slippery, muddy. What would you do as a kid? Or at least, what would I do as a kid if given half a chance? We'd go and we'd run and we'd play and we'd dive in the water and we'd tackle our friends, we'd jump in the mud, we'd have a blast, it would be amazing. At least while it lasted. And then after a while, we'd be wet, we'd be cold, and we'd be dirty. We'd be sopping from head to toe, we'd be freezing, and our clothes would be filthy. And then we'd want to go back inside. We'd want to be washed. We'd want to be warmed. And we'd want to put on fresh new clothes. But before we could do that, what needed to happen? Before we could be cleaned, before we could be warmed, before we could put on fresh new clothes, what did we have to do? We had to take off those dirty, smelly, heavy old clothes. And I think that's what James is saying here. He's saying that all that anger and bitterness... All that inability to love and listen, all that sin in your life is like wearing dirty, smelly, heavy old clothes. And so he says, get rid of them, take them off, throw them away, leave them alone. Get rid of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent. 
In other words, take off those dirty, smelly, filthy dirty clothes. And as you do, verse 21, he says, humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Let's backtrack a bit. How do we live as first fruits today? How do we live as followers of Jesus in our daily lives? How do we be quick to listen and slow to speak? How do we be slow to anger? How do we get rid of our anger, our bitterness, and all other moral filth in our lives? According to James in verse 21, we do so by humbly accepting the word planted in you, which can save you. By humbly accepting the word, the same word of truth in verse 18. The same word that birthed us, the same word that washed us, the redeemed us and restored us into new seed, the same word that continues to work in us, growing us, bearing fruit in us, indeed saving us. In other words, and I hope you can see this from our verses, that we live as first fruits today by humbly accepting the gospel. That word planted in you which can save you is the gospel, and we live our day-to-day lives as followers of Jesus by humbly submitting our desires and our behaviors, indeed, by humbly submitting our whole lives to the gospel. And I don't want you to miss what James just did here in verse 21. James took the people's concerning behaviors, their inability to listen, their unloving words, their angry hearts, and he took them straight to the heart of the problem. He took them straight to their acceptance and submission to the gospel. James is saying that if you struggle to listen, then you need to accept the gospel. If you are angry, then you need to accept the gospel. If you are bitter, then you need to accept the gospel afresh. Because the gospel is the only thing that is truly able to save you. Listening techniques are good. Anger management is helpful. But only the gospel truly saves. Only the gospel truly transforms. Only the gospel can soften a heart hardened by bitterness. Only the gospel can replace a proud, angry spirit with a humble, peaceable one. Only the gospel can truly save you. The gospel. The good news. The good news that God in his infinite love and grace would come as a human being. Jesus of Nazareth. That he would live the perfect, sinless life. The life that we should all live, but we don't and we can't. And that sin separated us from God, leaving us deserving of only judgment and death. But that Jesus died instead, receiving the full force of God's just anger and punishment for sin. That there on the cross, he died for your sin and my sin, paying the debt we owed. And that he rose again, defeating sin and death providing a way for us to be reconciled back to God and that we, the church, through trusting in faith in his finished work, through trusting in the gospel and not our own works, that we are the first fruits of God reconciling all the world back to himself, the gospel. And we need to humbly accept this gospel every day. We need to submit our desires and behaviors to this gospel every day. We need to take off our dirty, sinful clothes and embrace this gospel in order to live as God's first fruits each and every day. And as we conclude, I'd like to say one last thing to those of you who are angry. I 
think if we're going to begin the road to recovery from anger and bitterness, that this is where we need to start. We need to start with the gospel. And we need, and we need to humbly ex- accept this gospel and let the gospel reach down deep to the root of our anger. To those of you who are angry today, would you consider Ephesians 4, verse 31 to 32? Similarly to our passage, Paul writes, get rid of all bitterness, anger, and rage. Instead, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ forgave you. So start with the gospel, with your own sinfulness, with your own personal offense against God. Recognize the anger you caused him. Recognize the anger that was poured out onto him because of you on that cross. The pain you caused him. And yet he forgave you. And just as Christ chose to forgive you, would you start the process of forgiving each other by choosing to forgive? Forgiveness begins with a decision. But forgiveness is also a long and hard process. So would you start that process by humbly accepting the gospel which is able to save you? And lastly, to all of us, common ground can stand for both. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Common ground can stand for Get rid of all your moral filth and evil that is so prevalent. Get rid of your bitterness. Get rid of your anger. And humbly accept the gospel, the word planted in you, which can set free. Common ground can stand Would we live as followers of Jesus today? Would you pray with me? And as I pray, maybe the band can come up. And I think as we're in a posture of prayer, would you do business with God? That there can be many different responses and applications from this message. And maybe what you need to work out with God is re-understanding your identity and destiny as God's child. That he has loved you, that he cares for you, and that you are his. To know who you are and to know where the world is going. Perhaps the appropriate response is repentance. To hear how we ourselves have been unloving in the way that we've listened to people or how we have hurt people and that that's not the way that we should live as followers of Jesus. So to take that sin and repent to God, to ask him to change us through his spirit and by his word. Maybe the last response that would be helpful would be to those of you who are angry because you've been wronged. Would you allow the gospel to soften your heart? Would you choose to forgive? And would you practically move towards that by his strength and in community? Heavenly Father and our gracious Lord Jesus, we are grateful for your kindness and your mercy to us. Thank you that you do not leave us as we are, but you have redeemed, restored, and remade us. And indeed, you are redeeming all things back to yourself. Lord Jesus, I pray for my brothers and sisters here and ask that we would know deep down who we are because of you and where this world is going because of your gospel, Jesus. Would we be a people who are slow to speak, quick to listen, 
that our anger would be anger for the things that you get angry about. That would be godly anger and not human anger. And that, Lord, we would live as followers of you, Jesus, today by your strength and in your grace. For your glory and for the peace of this community, we pray. Amen. Would you sing with me?